so there is a particular area in my personal life where I have been delinquent. Um, so I would be on the uh, health, the physical side of things. Um, I would be pretty much like just going to the doctor, going to the dentist. I would be embarrassed to tell you the last time I went to the dentist, so I'm not going to. But I know that it's been a few years since I've gone to any doctor at all. I'm like, you know what? It's probably a good thing to do. Uh, plus, as I'm looking around, it's like, if you're a mother, you might be judging me. I don't know. Mothers care about this sort of thing. Um, but you would be good. You'd be thrilled to know that just a couple weeks ago, I landed. I have chosen a physician. I have not scheduled any appointment yet, but that is coming down the pike. But I do know that when I go into that office for the first time, since he knows nothing about me, uh, he is going to hand me, or the lady is going to hand me a stack of papers, and they're going to ask for a family history. And this is common practice for physicians. And the reason is, since they know nothing about me, they'll be able to tell a lot just from the regular examination. But in order to kind of get to know where I'm coming from, everything that might happen, could happen, just to kind of get to know me as an individual, they're going to want to know about uh, my parents' medical history. Uh, Just kind of even grandparents on up the line. Are there any patterns or traits, diseases, disorders, whatever that they should be aware of in order to, as the years go on, as I have this relationship with my doctor, uh, be that uh, preventative care or just things to be uh, mindful of as I get older, depending from very minor to moderate to even serious illnesses. This is something that every doctor requires because family histories are extremely valuable and important, essential to our physical health. Well, there are different types of family histories out there. Specifically, there we can look back and think about the emotional family histories or the relational family histories that we all come from, going back generations and generations. What are some patterns that have come down and now rest within you and your family and that you might even be passing on to uh, your own children? Some of us might know uh, some of these patterns as dysfunctional patterns. Now, there are positive qualities that we pass on from generation to generation, but we're not necessarily talking about those this morning. We are in the world of dysfunction. Uh, If you were here with us last week, you know that we have started this new four-week series called This Is Us, and it's based upon the very popular uh, NBC uh, television program. It's gone, gone for a few seasons now. Uh, just so you know, like who, who watches the show at least a little bit, probably half. I'm not seeing a lot of men. Well, they're more like probably captive men, right? Have to watch this show. They're sentenced to it. Anyway, I have not watched any episode of this particular show. What I know about it, I know there's a lot of crying. I know there's a lot of siblings to keep track of. I know that there's a lot of flashbacks. And I know that a crockpot was a villain in one of these seasons. That's my understanding of this show. But I do know much that why this is so widely viewed and critically acclaimed is because uh, when we look at these particular characters on a screen, or really any family from any television show, we can see what's going on, and it's very, very easy to relate to these individuals. What they do to each other, what they go through, what happens to them, people, the idea is watch this show and think, wow, that could just as easily be my story up there. So every year we try and do a relationships sort of focus series, usually around this time of year, and we decided, what if we look at some of the major family systems and structures in the middle or back half of Genesis and see what we can find? 
Because even though this took place, what we're going to read this morning, roughly 4,000 years ago, just the dysfunction that we're going to see in these families, uh, even though it happened so long ago, uh, these types of dysfunction keep on happening, and we're going to be able to look at this family today and the rest of the series and say, wow, what they had going on then, they have, we have going on now. We can say about these characters in Genesis, this is us. This is Southwest and the families that make up Southwest. So we could all get together, if we put our heads together, we could make a massive list of all the different uh, patterns of dysfunction that either we know of or we've experienced in our family. Uh, We won't do that, but some of the popular patterns could be uh, just codependent relationships or different types of abuse. Uh, Favoritism from uh, parents to their children. Deception or lying or manipulation. One person trying to control another individual. Uh, The inability to resolve conflict or handle or just deal with conflict at all. And just typical good old run-of-the-mill broken relationships. Today the individuals we're talking about, uh, they are Isaac and Rebecca, this married couple, along with their twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, This family is uh, dysfunctional to the max, and we're going to see patterns of, one, lying and manipulation, but also as well as parental favoritism. Uh, just because I know this was helpful to me, even though I've been familiar with you know, these historical figures for some time, I can still get confused on some of the names. So I just throw out this very, very simple, um, just a reminder of kind of who we're talking about. Uh, last weekend, uh, Roger talked about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham shows up in Genesis 12, really early in the Bible, and God kind of picks Abraham and says, hey, I'm starting with you, and through you, your offspring, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make your uh, a massive nation out of you and your descendants. I'm going to give you a lot of land. And in the midst of this, I'm going to bless you quite a bit, so long as, you, so long as you're obedient. So that's kind of the three big promises that starts off Genesis with Abraham. God promises, be faithful, and I'm going to give you uh, land, nation, and blessing. Those are the big three. Anyway, so Abraham and Sarah, they eventually give birth to their son Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca, and today we're talking about uh, Isaac, Rebecca, and their two sons. So that's kind of the family structure up to this point. It's going to grow a little larger next week when Roger's back up here. Uh, But here's what we wanted to do. I want to start, we're going to be in chunks of Genesis 25 all the way through Genesis 27. Uh, But I'm going to fill in the gaps for us along the way. There's a lot of material to go through, but it's all story and it's all heavy drama. But starting in Genesis 25. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. I know that matters to everyone. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Esau, which pretty much means hairy. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. That pretty much means deceiver. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. And as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. I like calling Jacob an inside dog. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. One thing that I'm always kind of, I don't know, surprised by, startled by, I'm not quite sure the uh, word to use, but I just, it's just interesting how scripture just comes right out and says, Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. 
Right out the gate, there's no mistaking that these parents have clear favorites right out the gate. Now, before we get into uh, some of the children and some of uh, the big chunk of what we're going to talk about this morning, I wanted to point out just some other generational similarities that are going on, uh, beginning with um, Abraham, Sarah, and their son Isaac and his wife. Uh, Just like his dad, Isaac marries a beautiful woman who is unable to have children. That's what was the case when Abraham married Sarah. She was unable, and it was decades before before she had Isaac. But also, just like with both married couples, eventually God intervenes and allows the couple to conceive a child. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac and Rebecca have um, Jacob and Esau. Now, I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to think. Uh, so whether you were here last week or not, we're going to kind of do like a review sort of thing. So here's how this whole Abraham and Sarah thing unfolded. They did not, um, it took them a long time for them to have Isaac. Uh, you know, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to, again, you know, have a massive nation, lots of people through you. But they weren't getting pregnant. <clears throat> so this happens, this is kind of the case for a while, and you know they're trying. And so Sarah has an idea one day, says, well, if we're not able to have this child, this son ourselves, then maybe there's not something that we're not doing on our end. So Sarah has this idea. She says, hey, you know my servant Hagar. Abraham, if you sleep with her and, you, they, and uh, she conceives, then we're just going to count that son as our son. And Abraham says, okay, I don't know how much of a fight he put up. Eventually, Hagar indeed does conceive by way of Abraham, and she gives birth to Ishmael. And uh, right after Ishmael is born, God kind of speaks up and says, whoa, 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 this is not what I had in mind. Uh, no, this son is going to come through Sarah. Ishmael, this doesn't count. And yes, certainly Abraham loved Ishmael, but also it would have been really, at the very least, conflicting. Like I imagine Sarah would have had very conflicted feelings about this uh, child who was kind of her son, but kind of not. And you know there was a tension between Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, and just this, again, just you can just imagine this family drama, putting it lightly. But because of that, because Ishmael was kind of not the son everyone thought he was going to be, I think it's reasonable to assume that when Isaac is born through Sarah, there's a 15-year gap between them. I think it's okay to assume, if we read kind of between the lines of the text, that Isaac would have been treated better than Ishmael. In some of their eyes, I think it's reasonable between Ishmael and Isaac that Isaac was the favored child because, hey, here was the son of the promise. He's the one who's actually going to carry on the family name. Now, we're going to get into, again, deception, lying, manipulating, and some favoritism here in a moment. Um, But I want to uh, pause and show this other pattern that Isaac may have taken from his dad, Abraham, from Genesis 26. A severe famine now struck the land as it happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, she is obviously your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. Now, if this were the main text of the morning, I would do a little more digging to kind of figure out why exactly is this included, because I'm a big believer that nothing in Scripture is wasted. 
Uh, if you were here last week, you would know that uh, Abraham and Sarah went through this exact same situation, the exact same dialogue, Abraham and Sarah going into a new territory, and just to kind of maybe save his own skin possibly, Abraham thinks, oh, if I'll tell this king that uh, Sarah's my sister, that way I won't be killed and they won't take her. And he's found out, and certainly... I think it's reasonable, like I don't know that I would ever um, advocate for lying, but if there's ever a situation, it might be this one, but how it came out, it sounds like Isaac has picked up a habit of, at least in a very tight situation, he's going to lie or not tell the full truth. Again, just an example of things that we do pick up from one generation to another. We're going to see these patterns all over the place. Uh, Anyway, so we're now going to go to our main passage. It's in Genesis 27, and we're going to see some major family drama unfold. Uh, Favoritism and deception or lying and manipulation, they're going to come together very seamlessly, and it's going to come together for this moment that it's going to splinter the entire family. After Genesis 27, this family, they're never going to be in the same place ever again. They're going to be separated. Now, as I'm going to read, you're going to hear talk of a blessing or a final blessing. Uh, There were two pieces that were very integral to the culture from father to son. One was uh, when a father passed away, uh, the older son would get both the birthright and the blessing. Now, the birthright was pretty much when dad dies, older son, he gets control of the entire family. He becomes the, um, the patriarch. So the clans, the extended family, everything about that, he becomes in charge. That's the birthright. And the blessing, it's kind of like today's last will and testament. So if you get the blessing, it means you're getting so much of the money, the resources, the property. It's that last will and testament piece. Now, earlier in a place that we didn't read, Jacob, through uh, some, just through his manipulation and kind of working the system, uh, Jacob has actually already stolen the birthright from Esau. And now we're going to talk about the blessing. Genesis 27. One day when Isaac was old and turning blind, he called for Esau, his older son, and said, My son. Yes, father, Esau replied. I am an old man now, Isaac said, and I don't know when I may die. Take your bow and a quiver full of arrows and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish and bring it here for me to eat. Then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. But Rebekah overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, her favorite son Jacob, Listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, Bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I'll bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks and bring me two fine young goats. I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. And over the next 15 verses, we're going to skip those. But here's kind of what happens between them. Uh, Jacob is kind of on board for this plan, but he raises up some issues. One, he and his brother, despite being twins, they really don't look or sound anything alike. So I'm guessing they were fraternal twins more than identical. Anyway, so Jacob's like, even if like whatever plan you come up with works, uh, if he finds out that I'm not Esau, then not only am I not going to get a blessing, I'm going to get a curse. And I don't know what happened in this marriage between Rebecca and Isaac. I don't know some of the dysfunction that's come here. I'm going to do some guessing later on. But Rebecca says, hey, if he does curse you, let that curse fall on me. You're not going to take any of it. 
So they come up with a plan concerning those two young goats. Uh, Mom, Rebecca, she's going to cook uh, dad's favorite meal. And I don't know how they do this exactly, but kind of the plan going forward is from these young goats, are going to take some of the skin, put some of the skin on Jacob's arms and hands and some on the back of the neck so that when or if uh, uh, Isaac tries to figure out uh, this is just kind of a way for them to fool him more. And they have since gone to Esau's closet. And so essentially Jacob is in a really big Esau costume. So anyway, they go in and there's some back and forth. Uh, I, uh, again, I'm getting these names mixed up. Jacob goes into his father Isaac on his deathbed. He's going blind. And Isaac's kind of like, hey, you don't quite sound like Esau. There's this back and forth. Uh, but So the tension is really, really high. Is this going to work out? Anyway, we jump back in verse 25. Then Isaac said, now, my son, bring me the wild game. Let me eat it, and then I'll give you my blessing. So Jacob took the food to his father, and Isaac ate it. He also drank the wine that Jacob served him. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come a little closer and kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he was finally convinced, and he blessed his son. He said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the outdoors, which the Lord has blessed. And here's the blessing that he pronounces on his son. From the dew of heaven and the richness of the earth, may God always give you abundant harvests of grain and bountiful new wine. May may many nations become your servants and may they bow down to you. May you be the master over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. All who curse you will be cursed. And all who bless you will be blessed. And as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and almost before Jacob had left his father, Esau returned from his hunt. Esau prepared a delicious meal and brought it to his father. Then he said, sit up, my father, and eat my wild game so you can give me your blessing. But Isaac asked him, who are you? Esau replied, it's it's your son, your firstborn son, Esau. And Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably and said, Then who just served me wild game? I've already eaten it, and I blessed him just before you came. And yes, that blessing must stand. When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too, he begged. But Isaac said, your brother was here, and he tricked me. He has taken away your blessing. What we've seen here is the conspiring of a wife against her husband and one brother cheating another brother. And this all happened from an environment and patterns of extreme dysfunction and overt, in-your-face favoritism. And things like this, they don't happen overnight. These things do not happen in a vacuum. They come from someplace. They start somewhere. Here's kind of the story that I'm telling about myself, because I just looking at this family, this husband and wife and these kids, I thought, I'm just asking the question, how did it get to this point? Now, here's the story I'm telling myself. It makes sense in my mind. Scripture does not reflect this. It's, it honors Scripture. It doesn't go to anything against, but here's kind of the story I'm telling. Isaac and Rebecca, they, uh, they got married at least when Isaac was 40 years old. And shortly after, they find out, hey, uh, Rebecca can't have kids. And after a lot of praying, it comes out when they find, when she finally does conceive, it's 20 years later. So there was 20 years of just Isaac and Rebecca. Now, having a family, yes, it's extremely important in value today. But if you rewind to those 4,000 years ago, uh, this was like all your value, your reputation, your character as a family came down to, uh, can you have a large family, especially sons, and how big can you build your family? 
That was like the life goal, family, 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 family. And when they didn't have a family for 20-some years, uh, some unhealthy thought patterns are likely going to creep in. Again, I don't know. This is the story I'm telling myself, but I think it's reasonable that when it's just the two of them and they had this expectation of each other, maybe Rebecca does a little bit of blaming, holding a grudge toward her husband. Maybe Isaac does the same toward his wife. I imagine there might be this small rift that happens between this married couple. And then finally, when they do have these two sons, all the love and devotion that they should have been having and building between themselves, they gave completely to their kids. Just looking at Genesis 27, it's clear to me that not only do Isaac and Rebecca not have a healthy marriage, I'm not sure how much they even communicate. Again, that's kind of the backstory I'm filling in. Let me, let me shift a little bit. Uh, this is going to be like the audience participation part of the message. Uh, just throw up a hand if you are one of any number of siblings. I have two brothers. I'm one of three. Yeah, most of us in the room. Now, here's another game we can play. Uh, raise your hand if you are certain that mom and or dad had a favorite child or have a favorite child. Some of us, I say, yeah, we're slowly getting a little bit brave. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I've noticed, and I talked a lot about this with my small group on Thursday night. Typically, if you are one of any number of siblings, typically the siblings together can articulate which sibling is the favorite. Now, on the other side, we're going to get into dysfunction here. If you ask mom or dad, who is your favorite, what do they say? I don't have one of those. I don't have a favorite. I love or favor all of them equally, right? So in the midst of this, somebody's wrong or somebody's lying. Some dysfunction going on. Four or five years ago, there was a study done from a Boston area university, and they wanted to, they were curious about this whole uh, favoritism from parents toward their children. So they, the study, they anonymously uh, asked about 500 mothers. These mothers were in their 60s and 70s, and they certainly had to have more than one child. And anonymously, these 500 mothers were asked, do you have a favorite child? And anonymously, 70% of these mothers said, yes, I have a favorite child. So something's going on here in the world of favoritism and families. Now, you might say that's Boston. It's a culture all its own. Yeah, maybe I can agree with that. But I think that's going to carry out into the rest of the country. So this type of dysfunction is not altogether unheard of. It won't surprise anybody, but sometimes it's just helpful to state the obvious. The author of that study, his name is Carl Pillemer out of Cornell. Uh, he says, like, you know, from the study, again, no surprises here, but those who were viewed as or treated as the favor, even loved more than the others, they tended to have an inflated view of themselves. Uh, their esteem was just a little off kilter in the pride or arrogant side of things. And if they followed those people, they would tend, like those people who were treated as the favorite, they might diminish other people or look down on others. But conversely, and certainly more sad, and we could certainly go down this rabbit trail, we're not going to, but those who perceived that they were not the favorite child or, or thought that they were loved less, major, major emotional issues uh, popped up. Esteem, depression, whatever, everything on that side. Here's how this, uh, at least our episode of this family drama uh, wraps up today. Verse 41. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I'll soon be mourning my father's death, then I'll kill my brother Jacob. 
But Rebecca heard about Esau's plans. Doesn't it seem like Rebecca is just always in the next room, just leaning in, what's going on? So she sent for Jacob and told him, listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you. So listen carefully, my son, get ready and flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you've done to him, which I can't imagine happening, I'll send for you to come back. Why should I lose both of you in one day? And from this day forward, this entire family is splintered. They will never be together again. Now, if you keep reading about Jacob, and you're gonna, we're going to hear different episodes from his life the next two weekends, but if you keep reading about Jacob, you're going to see that the rest of his life is marked by struggle with both God and any other human he comes into a relationship with. And he's going to continue to be a liar and a manipulator. Even though he'd kind of been the victim and lived in that and see the damage that it did, he's going to keep that pattern going. And would you believe he's going to keep another pattern going? Again, you'll see this in a couple weeks. But he's going to keep the pattern going by himself having his favorite son. He's eventually going to have 12 sons, and the youngest is going to be his favorite. And it's going to be obvious. And he treats the favorite as the favorite. Even these patterns of dysfunction, even when we live in them, we see the damage that they do, it just feels so inescapable, even though we lived it and we can see the problems and identify them and label them and name them. It's really hard to divorce ourselves from these things that we're very aware of and do so much damage, but we keep them going. Now, part of this is, yeah, we have our own pieces. I'm a firm believer in that everyone is responsible for their own actions, But also, this does illustrate just the power that uh, parents and former generations can have into whatever we're born into. Uh, I came across this example from a lengthy article online, so I'm just going to read straight from it, uh, just uh, showing the power of generations that come before us. Here's what this author writes. It says, How powerful can the generational influence of parents be on their own family and descendants? In 1874, a member of the New York State Prison Board noticed that six members of the same family were incarcerated at the same time. The board did some research, looking back a few generations, to try to find the original couple who initiated this tragic family legacy. They traced the family line back to an ancestor born in 1720, a man considered lazy and godless with a reputation as the town troublemaker. He was also an alcoholic and was viewed as having a very low moral character. And to make matters worse, he married a woman who was just like himself. And together they had six daughters and two sons. Here's what that report revealed about the approximately 1,200 descendants of this couple who were alive by 1874, more than 150 years later. Now there's some overlap here, but listen to these numbers of the 1,200. 310 were homeless. 160 were prostitutes. 180 suffered from drug or alcohol abuse. 150 were criminals who spent time in prison, including seven for murder. And the report also found that the state of New York had spent $1.5 million, a shockingly high number at that time, even for today. They spent that much, the state of New York, to care for this line of descendants. And not one had made a significant contribution to society. Both sadly and obviously, we can see by this example how the harmful dysfunction of parents can be passed down from generation to generation. Now, in contrast, another family heritage was studied involving a couple who lived about the same time. This second family study began with the famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards. You might know the name, you might not. But he was born in 1703. 
a deeply religious man. He lived a life of strong moral values and became a minister and a dedicated family man. He married a deeply religious woman named Sarah who shared his values, and together they had 11 children. Eventually, Jonathan Edwards became the president of Princeton University. And here's what researchers discovered about the roughly 1,400 descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards by 1874. 13 were college presidents. 65 were college professors. 100 were attorneys. You might say that belongs on the other list. I don't know. 32 were state judges. 85 were authors. 66 were physicians. 80 held political offices, including three state governors. Three were state senators, and one became vice president of the United States. Certainly a stark contrast between what generations can do depending on their habits and dysfunctions and what they do about them. Uh, Last summer, we did a 10-week study or series in the book of Exodus, just on the Ten Commandments. And the uh, third commandment comes out to God saying, hey, I don't want you to have any other gods before me. I'm supposed to be like the center of your life. Don't put anything above that. And so I was thinking about that commandment and kind of a promise or an assurance that God throws along with that. Now, we don't make small gods for ourselves. They kind of carve them out of wood and, and rock back then. We don't do that today. But we can put any number of things that we like above God or in God's place. So with that spirit in mind, uh, here's what God said uh, to Moses and the Israelite people back in Exodus 20. He said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. He says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. I think we can see that depending on family dysfunctions, just, you know, disobedience or ignoring God can have repercussions, ripples from generation to generation. And conversely, just like the Edwards family, we see what happens when love and obedience to God affects generations to come. Kind of like the big thought or the big sentence, kind of the bottom line that I wanted to share this morning is this. Uh, We can never fully escape the patterns of dysfunctions that we inherit. We can't escape the dysfunction that we're born into. We get what we get. But we can live with future generations in mind and build our lives on Jesus Christ alone. That's what we would have for us going forward. Uh, In uh, early Matthew, uh, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon um, in history, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we get things like the golden rule, how to pray, how to give, everything like that in that sermon. Anyway, Jesus ends that sermon with these words, which I would have for us this morning. Jesus says this, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. Every single week we are in the habit of observing communion. If you're on that team this morning, um, that would be your cue to kind of go on back. Uh, Hopefully we're we're good on volunteers for that. Um, But... Whenever I get up here or when Roger gets up here or whenever I get to sit and listen to a sermon, uh, typically I I don't hear a lot of new truths or a lot of new things on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I learn things, but typically what I leave with, what I remember most is something that I've been taught before. Usually it's a reminder that I leave the building with. 
And a lot of time it's the reminders that kind of keep us on track or kind of uh, encourage the better decisions that we make for ourselves. And I think Jesus knows this as well. I think that's why he institutes this thing called communion. Jesus says, whenever you gather together in my name, do this in remembrance of me, because I know that Jesus uh, realized the value of remembering and repetition and just that we need to hear things over and over and over again. When we talk about family dysfunction, it's one of those, everyone has one of these, not one person in here has a functional family. It's just different levels of dysfunction. So we could have heard, uh, depending on who you are and your family, you could have heard any number of things this morning. And when you leave, you might need to, you know, call somebody, uh, apologize to somebody, ask for forgiveness for somebody, encourage somebody, you know, anything like that. It could have gone any number of different ways for you today. Uh, But for our time now, I would love for us to remember Jesus and that Jesus offers us complete function. There's no dysfunction in Jesus. If we need faithfulness, it's in Jesus. Love, it's in Jesus. Grace is in Jesus. Encouragement, comfort, it's in Jesus, who will never fail. And no matter how uh, loving and awesome our families are, they are not perfect. But Jesus is. So I'm going to pray for us, and I would love for every one of us to focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. So pray with me. <clears throat> Father, for the next several minutes as we uh, come to you in private worship, Uh, allow us to be reminded that we can place our entire lives, our uh, belief, our faith on you alone. That if we believe and live by your words, we are building our lives on a solid foundation. And that if we wouldn't do that just for our own selves, that we can look into the future and start putting patterns in place in your name uh, that will bless uh, family members that we won't even get to meet. But we desperately need help. We all come from dysfunction, and we all perpetuate that dysfunction. And uh, we need health. We need love. We need grace. We need everything we can that you can provide in our lives and our families. So help us focus and remember uh, you and only you. It's in Jesus' name we all pray together. Amen.